0: Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today's guest is Paul at rules underscore follower on Twitter, but I affectionately refer to him as young Hegelian.
1: Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Uh good to be back in the the chicken coop <laughs> in,
0: in the bullet coop spaceship. The bullet man. coop spaceship. There yeah, we go. There you go. That's what it <laughs> That's is. It. <laughs> but uh the reason I brought Paul on I mean he's a, he's an up and comer. He's a he's a fucking he's doing his Hagels every night before bed. And uh yeah, he's he's a good guy. He's uh active here in the Austin DSA chapter and uh, I think a pretty sharp cat, a fellow shit poster. And the ship posters uh, local here in Austin, so yeah, fucking good guy.
1: Yeah, good, good to be in the uh, comradeship. Yeah, always good to you know get in, get some work in on the Austin ship posting collective. You That's know? right. Uh, yeah, uh, shit, uh, we just got back from a DSA barbecue raising money to uh, get people out to the national convention. So that that was fun. People people cooking out and everything it's a really good day. And it was like right next to a public pool that was like basically
0: empty. It's really nice. But uh, I I think part of what was interesting about having you on, or the reason I wanted to have you on was to kind of get a more, because I think I'm firmly more so, you know, in that sort of ANCOM realm, loosely speaking. And then I think you're probably more of like what, like like a sort of classical orthodox Marxist, I guess Ask, roughly yeah. I mean well, you know, I'll let you I'll let you go. Sure.
1: Yeah. Well, um so I think a lot of people have kind of said this take before but I think like uh, people kind of tend to like you know very much Tumblrized uh, tendencies, right? Like, oh yeah, I'm a I'm an anarcho primitivist/Marxist-Lenin slash like, you know, just put like a bunch of word salad M-Marcy-ite into it. And <laughs> yeah, and so I like, don't
0: even know what the fuck Marciite is to you <laughs> But I know there's them and like the Sparts and shit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And all the Trotskyists and everything. It's like, I'm whatever. I'm, I'm just uh, in DSA. And I think Marx was right about a lot of stuff. That's
0: <laughs> basically well, where I stand. I mean, I definitely have mad respects for, for Karl Marx. Uh, I would even say maybe like some string. I mean, even like a libertarian Marxist sort of synthesis somehow is kind of has some appeal to me as well. I mean, the political economy critique that he laid out was, I mean, foundational, I think, in terms of at least getting an understanding of of capital and how it really works from that sort of the social relations.
1: Right, for sure. And I also think that, like, people do tend to, like, very much, like, kind of treat it very factionally, right yeah. which is uh, kind of immature i think a lot of the time um you know uh, every now and then you'll get like these anarchists who will like say that marx was wrong about literally everything and it's like you know you really don't need to be that dogmatic i guess about it all right um because you know uh, you can disagree or agree with like the marxist praxis yeah and still think his like you said like the the Political economy is still accurate right? right
0: yeah, at least in large part, and I think that's kind of where I more so come from
1: right, yeah, because man uh, uh as far as like the what what people the problems people have with Marx very frequently is like. A lot of the stuff that you see, like just the terminology he used, right? Like uh, as soon as people hear the word, like the words dictatorship of the proletariat, people like kind of freak out and then, uh, you know, just kind of denounce it all, (laughs) which is uh, a very black and white way of looking at
0: things, I guess. But uh, we have chosen today to read an article and it was kind of a pretty good critique of both Marxism and more sure, I think the article actually calls it uh, libertarian socialism, which, again, is another moniker that I think more or less kind of describes there's a lot of overlap in terms of um, kind of my position as well. And so I thought this would be a good uh, back and forth and um, good discussion. And it turned out to be a really good article that I really enjoyed. So um, the article is The Crisis of Dialectical Materialism and Libertarian Socialism by Mario Kutahar um and we'll just start off i think um the piece opens i think with a really good kind of broad definition more or less of sort of what that means what dialectical materialism means very broadly or at least a component of it and i'm just going to read directly from the text um men make their own history but they do not make it just as they please they do not make it Under circumstances chosen by themselves, but under circumstances directly encountered, given, and transmitted from the past. Constantly vying with each other are two processes. The attempt by human beings to change the world into a human world and the self-preserving inertia of this world that they are trying to change. On the one side, human life, the source of all meaning, a free consciousness bent on making its freedoms real, and on the other, the sheer weight of circumstances that not only resist this freedom, but threaten to turn human actions into inhuman results. As long as people do not make history with the circum with the consciousness that they are doing. So the power of circumstance prevails, the tradition of all the dead generations weigh like a nightmare on the brain of the living.
1: Yeah. And so I think they were very, uh, yeah, I, I pointed that I kind of like highlighted that one too, because it's, a. Uh, it's why I originally kind of uh, uh, recommended like uh, uh diving into the 18th Brumaire of yeah, which uh, I think that Napoleon. actually is a direct no, quote. No, it's a direct to, quote. Yeah. yeah, it's the opening passage of the 18th Brumaire and uh if if I had to explain like materialism to anybody, that is exactly or like Marx's materialism is that is exactly the uh the f- quote that I would use like just yeah right away, you know, we, you know, we are grounded in our history, we, we make ideology, and ideology kind of like reinforces us, right? And so I think that that was, I think, uh, you know, if you're trying to get like a broad outline of what Mark, Marx thought the motor of history was, uh, that's, that's definitely the case. And yeah, and that's why, uh, that's why you know, it's, it's I think the author is right that that's like the quote that you should really point out. Uh, for Marx, because also it's a, it's just a really great like image, right? The, the the tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare. It's really, it's really, uh, you know, kind of getting into his uh, goth mood, you know, <laughs> like d- d- very much, uh, kind of reminiscent of like the romanticism, uh, literary trends in that, in that era. Right. And, uh, Let me tell you, man, Marx, he knew how to write. He, he, he had a lot, he had a much, people get this idea of like, they try to read capital, which is (laughs) very, very dry. dry. Yeah, Yeah. And it's like, people get the wrong idea. And, uh, about, about like his writing style. When, when a lot of his like earlier stuff is like this, like flowery language and just like devastating owns of all these other people who were in the young Hegelian movement. And, uh, it's, yeah, uh, I would recommend that to anyone who's interested in getting into Marx. That's like the thing that I would read.
0: And so to to counter this idea or materialism or dialectical materialism, we need to, I think, look at how sort of the liberal, um, he- like the hegemony, hegemony of liberalism and it's sort of the sort of history that we're all brought up in, like this that conception of history is one that is very different it's sort of just these events that happen on their own without any sort of historical context of really any kind it's just like isolated incidents and that's how you know that's sort of the default mode through which people are taught history and we have sort of the we always study you know the great events of history the great leaders of history and that sort of conception of the the great men of history kind of paradigm right which is in stark contrast to dialectical materialism that posits you know these these events have causes these ha- events have roots within the historical process and the the social relations and the economic relations and the superstructure and the substructure all of that is always going to be playing into why things occur and not just these random events that you know you recite okay in 1763 this happened and so forth
1: yeah, and that's one of the major things that really kind of brought me to Marxism in general, right? Uh, this idea that uh, we, can, we can interpret the world in, with an actual kind of like, you know, understand why things happen instead of having them just like descend from up on high, right? It, it really, uh, as someone who has been basically, you know, like an atheist for his entire life, Um, it's been very kind of, uh, revealing to have like, uh, to be able to look at history as something that really comes, you know, comes from a grounding, right. That, that is really like easily understandable. Yeah. And I would, I think you would say that like, if you told people, uh, like that, that this is kind of the, like class struggle is the motor of history and like, you know, we're very influenced by our economic you know circumstances i think a lot of people would broadly agree yeah right and absolutely because that's like that's just they know that like if you're if you're poor you're going to have a very different view of the world than if you're uh than if you're rich right mm-hmm. and so i think that's why it the the legibility of it and the uh and the the simplicity that that it has really does kind of lend it to being a i think it's Lukacs or something Lukas or however you pronounce that who who said that like materialism is the proletarian history right because it's uh it 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 subverts the narrative right uh the great man hit the great manism is very much like a uh bourgeois idea right because uh it says the ruling class makes history and you know uh, the people, the, the groundlings don't really do anything to change it. Whereas, you know, if you start to see it as like a struggle and then you can actually like learn from history and like, uh, that famous quote from, uh, the thesis on Feuerbach, the Which hit or I think two quote
0: in here. As well, yeah, right?
1: probably. It's a, uh, con- you know, there's like a greatest hits. Quote. Yeah. <laughs> greatest hits, the, the, the point is uh, hitherto we've only interpreted the world. The point is to change it, right? And that's, that's where the, I guess, the proletarian nature of dialectical materialism comes from, right? Because we can tell that, like, if we change the economic, if we can change the modes of production, then we can really start, you know, changing history and changing people. And, because, you know, I think, I, think, I think if you don't think that humans are adaptable to their economic conditions and, like, human nature is, like, fluid... I think if you think that, if you don't think that, then I don't see why you're not just like a nihilist in a bunker somewhere.
0: Yeah. Right. What do you, do you have uh, what about just, and I think they even mentioned this in other Arthur mentioned in the article, kind of a more of the broadly speaking, a materialist ontology, ontological position of, and I'm sort of one that, you know, I don't think that we do have a lot of agency, precisely because of the weight of history bearing down on us and all of the circumstances, you know, where we're sort of born in an existing set of social power relations, economic relations entirely. So it's sort of like the tracks, there's, you know what I mean? There's not like an infinite ability, the way that liberalism tries to preach to you that there's sort of like this open, just go ahead and just go out there and, and do it, you know? There's a lot of constraints placed on the individual. I mean, obviously it's like, you can't be doing a podcast in uh in eight in nineteenth century Germany right the tools the of you know to transmit and record and all that technology doesn't exist right so you're sort of already constrained depending on what historical era you're born into do you have you thought much about that sort of it's a different form of materialism i think but
1: yeah so well i think it's i think it's really you know we do need to you do need to have a good like view of what what the uh, what tools at your disposal what the tools at your disposal are right and uh I think that's uh you know that's why we say like that's why Marx says that uh, men do not make it as they please right um, really all that uh you know knowing about historical materialism is is trying to escape those shackles right of trying of trying to find a way to, you know, look at the world and look at, you know, the, and try to change it scientifically, right? Uh, as opposed to just, uh, you know, this, uh, what really influenced that was very much the experience of, uh, Marx in the revolutions of 1848, right? Which was this big, uh, thing where people didn't really have a lot of an idea of what, what the world that they were building was going to look like or what, what to really do after uh political liberation really happened. And so it was, it, it, it comes to realize, you know, that we are, we're simultaneously trapped and liberated by this, uh, by this idea of, right, that we are influenced by our own material circumstances. And, you know, that's where really it comes to, uh, that's where like the for example like the russian revolution really differs from for example 1848 the french revolution right because they're very because the russian revolution was very deliberately trying to change history in the way they saw fit right which is why it was informed by uh marx right because he had a very specific idea of how to accomplish things and so i think that that is a very good like uh, I, I think it's definitely a big, big point to realize that we are like, you know, constrained because you need to, you need to know where to go. Right. And, and that's, that's really what I guess materialism is about. Like knowing your limits, knowing what's possible here and there. And uh, you know, I guess not getting disheartened by it in yeah. a way.
0: Um, but I w- wanted to move on. I think the text, has and kind of lays out somewhat of a basis for a libertarian socialist view. Um, this kind of follows that uh, overview of kind of the uh, dialect. Why am I saying delect? It's delectable materialism. God damn it. Shit is It's good. <laughs> mm, That's that tasty. Good, good, mo- good morsels. Yeah. <laughs> libertarian, libertarian socialism starts from the simple but profound truth. People make their own history. Therefore, oppression, which has been, which is, so far been the predominant theme of history is not a natural principle and it is not a supernatural one either what rules and oppresses one person is always another person oppression then is not inevitable the world is not unchangeable because quite literally the world is what we make it
1: right yeah and i think that that's around uh that's kind of around some uh the point where i also highlighted uh it was like uh you know Uh, the thing that i got was like but these uh, these forces of by virtue of their very impersonality are neutral the winds do not oppress lack of shelter does right and i think that that's a very good uh way to see it right that uh uh the the goal of ideology is to make human suffering seem natural right and that's that's why uh That's why it's not, that's why ideology isn't just downstream
0: from material conditions, right? It kind of feeds back into it. And I mean, I think too, like even some, I mean, like I said, just from like a different, the more scientific materialist viewpoint, right? I mean, which I'm very kind of open to in a a large sense, but at the same time, there is like, yes, we don't have this free will that everyone I think assumes in, in a commonsensical sort of way. But there I think there's obviously room for change somehow. I don't know what the agent is. I don't know exactly how all of that works, but I think there there is some element of choice some somehow in that in our you know i guess in just in living in being right um, because I think I back on my own views in terms of politics and whatnot, having been raised in a very conservative like evangelical home and like transitioning from that to now uh, <laughs> probably like the complete opposite in many regards so obviously like there is some ability to change and we're not just stamped out by like ideology and, and material conditions like there is some fluidity at some point though i would probably argue like there it's very limited right like absolutely you, you're gonna you're, there's a lane you can kind of move around in but you know beyond that you're sort of you're hemmed in to some degree but you can sort of there is change change is possible right
1: Right, exactly, and I think like a lot of, a lot of ruling class ideology, right, is to paint the world as unchangeable, right, and to kind of uh, that's just the way it is. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It was the same way with feudalism. It was the same way with uh, It's the same way with capitalism, right? Uh, what's the quote like? Someone I can't remember who, but says like, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, and that's ideology at work, right? And that's that's really where um you know having a real view of what history is and how it happens is very um it can be very helpful to people right because it, it and that's i think one of the biggest things of this piece right that that trying to say that you know we we do have agency and you know we can we can learn from the failures of the past without you know having to having to constantly condemn or apologize for it right and so that's that's kind of what I mostly took out of it as someone who's, like, very, uh... I'm very, like, interested in Russian history, I, w- I guess I would say. Like, I've read a lot about it recently. And, you know, especially... And also, like, the last time I came on was... I was talking about, like, you know, the history of uh, the German Social Democrats, right? And it's very interesting. And I guess, you know, this is very much kind of touching on the same basis, right? Where you have these... uh Two opposition, like two like factions, I guess, that you would see in Marxism, right? Where you know the SPD wants to control the govern the state machine, and the Russians wanted to overthrow it, right? And so I think that uh, I think that this piece does a lot of good, a lot of work, like encapsulating the the failures of both while trying to learn from it, as opposed to you know you get you get into these. Uh, arguments with i guess um social democratic people you know who very much see the electoral process as like the only motor for change right and it's very um what would you say i kind of lost my train of thought here it was uh it's very um you get you find yourself relitigating the arguments that you know uh lenin and bernstein had against each other you know it's like it's a. Uh, almost like, uh, history repeats itself, or does not repeat itself, but often rhymes. That's, uh, you know, I mean, that's another thing. Like, I was, I was thinking back on all these, like, views, ways that people, like, you know, look at history, like, the fact that history repeats itself, but it doesn't repeat itself, but it's often rhymes, like, that's paraphrasing Marx, right? People have this gut intuition about what, about, you know, how history happens, they just don't have a, have a, uh, like, a guide through it, right? And so that's where I think really the value of, you know, historical materialism comes in.
0: And I think dude, I just want to repeat this last line of this too, because this is definitely what I think is the important takeaway, even for someone like myself that I think recognize that feels like free will is, is pretty constrained. Oppression is then is not inevitable. The world is not unchangeable because quite literally the world is what we make it.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that's like, you know, how we can, because, you know, liberalism was when, when it was like tearing away the bonds of feudalism, it was a liberatory force. Right. And that's, uh, you know, that's something you can't, uh, and the fact that it, you know, produced its own contradictions and own, own, like, you know, uh, annihilation, (laughs) uh, events like, like the mass extinction event that we're seeing right now is, you know, uh, viewing that as something that happens and, you know, reading that as like the motor of history that's driving change is really, you know, it's, it's very legible, right. It makes, it makes sense, I guess, to me, um, which is why I wish that people would, uh, you know, uh, stop reading capital and start reading like, you know, uh, I guess, uh, <laughs> the 18th premier like, you know, just learn about historical materialism more, I guess.
0: Fair enough. Um, the author, I think, in this next section is going to go... He's going to go in on Marx a little bit. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, we are free to criticize dead people. Yeah. <laughs> capitalism being mechanistic in its practice is well-suited to denounce... I also thought this was a, some of this was a really fucking awesomely good analysis of capitalism. Capitalism having, being mechanistic in its practice is well-suited to denounce opposing theories as mechanistic. Having made freedom precious by denying it, it finds it useful to attribute its own sins to the doctrine of others. Still, its task would have proved far harder than it, ha- than it has if Marxists had not been so anxious to justify their critics. When Marx said in the German ideology that the eyes of the ruling class are in every epoch the ruling ideas, he does not seem to have realized to the extent to which this applied to him too.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true, right? Because, uh, and it's also, you know, very, uh, I think there's a quote in there about, like, how, you know, the the early socialists definitely, um, in kind of the master-slave dynamic, very much uh, defined themselves in opposition to the liberals, right? During the revolutions of 1848, and and it kind of, through that, uh, let, you know, bourgeois ideology kind of, you know, creep in, right? And so when I think it, I think where, where you really see uh, uh bourgeois ideology like seep into at least uh, Marxism is where, uh, where you get into these people like, uh, Kautsky, Bernstein, all these like really, th- because this piece definitely like puts on blast at the German SPD, like probably the most blastable socialist party of all time. um, you know, where these people think that, uh, they can change, they can, where they, where these people think that they can elicit, uh, proletarian goals in a bourgeois system. Right. Right. Which is definite, which is definitely like the, the main thing that killed the second international. Right. And I think that that's, uh, I think that that's very, you know, it's very easy to be a revision, a bourgeois revisionist of Marx. And that's because, I think, like they said, that it's, uh, you know, uh, he, he definitely, I mean, obviously Marx is not perfect in any way, shape, or form, and and he's open to interpretation. And that's really where uh, ideology enforces itself, right? And where it gets possible to, you know, have a socialist party vote to go to war, right? Right. Very sad. Oh, yeah. Sad. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. You want to talk about like the thing, the thing. I guess I said this the last time that really just damned socialism for a hundred years. It, it has to be the fact that they voted, that the SPD voted for war credits and for World War I and killing Rosa Luxemburg, who also gets shouted out in this piece. Uh, I guess a personal favorite of many, a libertarian socialist, uh,
0: Rosa Luxemburg absolutely and i think too for someone who's quite anti-statist as well this cr- sort of criticism of marx rings very true in the context of something like the the dictatorship of the proletariat mm-hmm. idea lar- you know brought very broadly speaking i'll be i will be fair to you there <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah it's very yeah that, the the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat is very um it's very morphable right i think or, or it's very like fluid and people have had their own definitions for everything right for that like you know once again toowwsky and Bernstein that meant having the already made the ready made state apparatus and taking control of that by like having the unions basically take control of that and you know that was one of Lenin's major beefs with that right his whole thing was that there needed to be a completely different form of state body to be even to to be even able to Instead, like abolish the wage system or something, right? Because a a bourgeois, a bourgeois parliament will never abolish the wage system, right? I think if we're, I think if we're talking about, um, uh, you know, a, a, like a democratically imposing socialism, whatever that means, it will happen in something that looks very different from the democracy that we have right now, right? And so I think that that's really where people get tripped up on it yeah right uh you know uh, all these all these things like i mean the fact that we take parliamentarism as like a the given role of the state is a very uh is very bourgeois in itself right it's very uh it turns par- the people who are elected into you know basically like middle managers right, which is very very different from uh something that you know can can actually Institute socialism, right? Uh, Like the whole thing with the Lenin and state and revolution is that it has to be a working body, right? These people need to be uh, doing the, doing the work and like actually overseeing, I guess, I don't really know. (laughs) It's, it's very, uh, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot to be gained from uh, reading that piece, I guess, in that, in that uh, we really do need to envision a different, form of like self-government right self-governance and how to decide about society yeah uh, in a in a way that's like you know like you said very anti-statist especially the one that we have right now
0: and definitely i mean you mentioned parliament tr- parliament system type government system but imagine like even worse than that is what we have in the states and mm-hmm. this fucking bullshit idea of this republic and you get these very pedantic people on Twitter saying, oh, we're we not in a democracy. We're in a fucking... <laughs> yeah,
1: good for you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things that it's very... Um, you know, I, and, and I think, like, uh, I was having a conversation with someone at the DSA barbecue where it was like, oh, yeah, like, that kind of sounds a lot like how my co-op works. And it's like, yeah, that is a lot more... In the vein of what I would envision as right. like some kind of way of collectively ordering society, then, um, you know, this weird thing where we have people who direct the state machine to, you know, uh, uh, raise the income tax or whatever. Right. That's a we're talking about two very different w- views of how people govern. Right. And so. I think that's uh I think uh, you know when when a lot of libertarian socialists very frequently like bring up worker co ops right and those are things that I think you know th- I'd say they're not praxis right you're like you're not going to institute socialism by building worker co ops everywhere, but they are a goal right is what I would say you know, and so uh you know i I really wouldn't have that many qualms with my libertarian socialist friends on that. Um I wouldn't really be able to uh nitpick that. I think that I think they're a very admirable goal. I just don't think they're praxis, right? I yeah. think is the thing that I would say.
0: I really want to at some point do an episode on I want to read the Ocelon piece, uh d- Democratic yeah. Confederalism, um and kind of get into that exact uh I guess their system that they have set up in Rojava to administer this sort of, you know what I mean? The Mm decision-making and so forth and how that works and digging into that. Cause I don't have a really good understanding of that kind of broadly speaking.
1: Yeah. And see, that's, that's really where I think I
0: come down. That's definitely practice. I mean, that's real world fucking practice. Oh yeah,
1: absolutely. And well, you know, it's, uh, you know, they have to defend themselves and that's very much, uh,
0: I mean, Which I think is also a great lesson to learn. too. Yes, you
1: know. absolutely. And that's, that's like a, uh, yeah, for God bless the people in Rojava, they're, they're fighting the good fight. And that's where I really think that, um, very frequently we kind of get tied down in all this, uh, very, like very theoretical stuff, right. Where, where it's like, whereas like, I think you could probably say that like, there are examples of. Uh, You know, even, even like Leninist things working out and even anarchist things working out, right? Like Cuba versus Rojava. I mean, these are both projects that have hitherto succeeded, right? Um, uh, I guess the, for both of them, the, the end goal remains to be seen. But, you know, I think that they're. I think that it's um, very dependent on the material conditions of what, what you've had, right? right? And so, why Rojava I think works a lot is because they're a, uh, they're a region that has very much had for the longest time, a history yeah. of basically Autonomous. autonomy. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so I think that that's very like, um, because of the material conditions of how people think about society, right. I think it, it, it lends, it lends itself, itself a lot yeah. more to, you know, an, an anarchist, like libertarian socialist kind of thing. Same with the Zapatitas, Zapatistas in, in a, uh, like Chiapas and all those like semi-autonomous regions in Mexico, right These are people that have uh, basically been kind of you know they've been driven into the hills by a by a, basically a colonizing force, right. and they've had to fend for themselves, and that's that's why th- this uh, like kind of more anarchist organizing model uh, and governing model works a lot better for them, right. And uh, as opposed to, like, you know, Cuba, which had this very rigid hierarchy of slavery and, like, a very consolidated ruling class that had all of the land and everything. And, you know, kind of just breaking that down and, uh, you know, instituting something different. But also with, like, you know, uh, more centralized-ish planning, I guess. Uh, It's very... Because that you know that was kind of the the system that the economic system that was there right, and so you know when it comes to the question the infamous question of what is to be done here in america <laughs> um, you know uh, i i really i 'm pretty much open to anything right because you see a lot of um, if you 've ever read um the people 's Republic of Walmart right we have all these. Uh, incredibly consolidated uh, capitalist machines, right? Like Walmart, Amazon, all of that, that like, you know, uh, some people have made a very compelling case to just basically like nationalize that and use those as opposed to like, you know, we also do have a very individualistic like ideology in our, in our heads. Right. So like anarchist organizing also makes a lot of sense to me. Right. And so it's, at this point, really, uh, as far as organizing for us goes, I think it's very much like kind of an open door, and just really teaching people that they have power, as opposed to like uh, a very specific like movement or pr- like uh, theory to move forward with. I guess. Yeah. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think too, something that immediately came into my head, and it was because I've been was listening just a couple of days ago, to Friend of the Pod, fellow poster uh, John Zichterman. He's doing his own solo show where he was reading a book chin piece, and the book chin piece he was reading was really good because it was kind of tapping into that material condition of the U.S., and there is a very strong libertarian sort of uh, milieu here, right, and that sort of like individualist freedom like element, right, but that has been sort of ignored, but that I think we can we can use that we can Mm -hmm. create a more like american strain of libertarian socialism or whatever you want to call it
1: yeah and that's i mean shit that's i mean that's
0: basically i mean that's i think that's like largely what my own beliefs are informed by as well right it's like that's what i'm attracted to because this whole idea of hierarchy in itself is to me the the biggest enemy whether it be you know, I don't want to serve Amazon. I don't want to serve the people's Republic of Amazon either. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's definitely, um, shit, what was I going to say? <laughs> there was, a uh,
1: oh yeah. My, my personal story of getting into like political theory is like reading up on the foundational texts of liberalism. Right. I found this like, a collection of books that a law student had thrown away outside of a dumpster when I was moving. And I was like, "Oh yeah, hey, look, John Stuart Mill. Let's <laughs> oh, read up God. on this." <laughs> and I was reading up on it, and I was like, "Oh shit!" Like a lot of this makes sense as like a political foundation, but you can see that the corros, like the corrosive effect that capitalism has had on all of these liberties that you know we were supposed to be, were promised by liberalism, and. I think especially as the productive forces of America really, like, as a, of a late capitalist society really start to get into a, like, more and more of a post-scarcity world, I think it becomes very important to have some kind of, you know, like... Especially in America, where we live in this society of abundance, being able to do whatever the fuck you want should be a political goal, right? Uh, it's just being able to—it's really where it comes down to is making—trying to have people realize that looking out for each other is in everybody's common interest, right? And that's very much um, something that we need to change from, yeah. you know, uh, from organizing, I guess, right? I mean, that's, that's stuff that we can get done— by teaching communities that they have structural power right yeah. that you have structural power in your workplace and that's something that we can you know approach from either an anarchist or a marxist perspective right and that th- the work to be done does not currently require a revolutionary theory i think we really need to we really need to get the proletariat to like you know realize that it can flex its muscles when it can right
0: yeah and that's something too i was um I was just explaining to my dad about it's like dude we are we are already we are already collectivized and we are producing everything socially at right now like it's it is happening we are just doing so under these private companies and these hierarchical forms of organization we can we can do that in a democratic fashion, right We yeah. don't have to be locked into this paradigm of you know of hierarchy and exploitation mm-hmm. we can take back that. Um, but I want to continue with the text. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. We kind of went bit, on a tangent there. Um, there's a, I, this is a little bit more going, the author going in on Marxism a little bit as well. Um, but I thought it was, it was pretty savvy. So the, the problem is that the ideas of the ruling class are dominant precisely to the extent that they are universal. It follows that the most profound expressions of the ruling class, those ideas that are most closely associated with its character, will seem the most harmless and perhaps even the most beneficial. That is what allows them to become dominant. There is therefore a constant danger that revolutionary thought will become infiltrated with counter-revolutionary concepts absorbed from the surrounding milieu, a process that is facilitated by the alienation which the revolution, no less than the average worker, is inflicted with. Revolutionaries will then recognize that their activities have reproduced, albeit in a different form, the pre-revolutionary conditions that they were trying so hard to eradicate.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely like, once again, if you look back to Russia, that's definitely, you know, something that really seeped in, right? And that's really what allowed the Soviet Union to fall in the first place, right? Uh, the fact that... Uh, they had this giant bureaucracy after after industrializing right through state capitalism. It, it was very, um, you know, uh, there are arguments to be had whether or not it was necessary to have state capitalism in order to, you know, develop the productive forces of the USSR. But, uh, you know, you can definitely see that how the material conditions of state capitalism in Russia eventually created this unelected, you know, body that was very in, Uh, this unelected hierarchy that was very intent on preserving itself. Right. As opposed to, uh, you know, not to sound like a Trotskyist, but like a a permanent revolution. Right. And so that's, that's really how kind of I see the, uh, any kind of like real progress in society being made. Right. You kind of have this very, uh, you have, I, I think you definitely do need to be able to have a robust, and militant rank and file in any kind of project whatsoever in order to keep the, the people in charge in, uh, in check. Right. Right. Uh, if you're, if you're, if you people, if the people who represent you or are doing the, like, you know, doing the working body shit for you, if they're not like, for example, instantly recallable, who are they accountable to really? Right. And so that's where, that's where I think a lot of this, like very much grassroots kind of approach to me makes a lot more sense than like a top-down system because you really do because i mean if you once again if we look at the you know the motor of history it's always been people protesting against you know or not protesting but like taking action against the state right uh you know all the accomplishments that liberalism is so fond of have always happened because people have been militantly opposed to anything else happening right And you know, I think that's that's very. uh, I think it's very astute to recognize that the material conditions of all failed revolutions have been have been what you know caused by ideology and then you know eventually bastardized by it, right? And so that's why I'm really fond of this piece, I guess, because it's it's very intent on not denouncing revolutions and not glorifying them as well, not performing hagiography, right? Which I think is very important. Uh, you know, I mean, shit, how, how many times have I had to, you know, uh, how much time have online leftists, you know, wasted yelling at each other over whether or not the USSR was perfect, right? That's ridiculous. What we should be looking at is like what worked, what didn't, and let's move forward, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. One bit here that I thought, especially particularly with that passage that came to mind, was I'll bring in my boy Lacan here because I thought this was very reminiscent of the sort of master-slave dialectic, and particularly the really big dick quote from Lacan that is uh, what you aspire to as a revolutionary. What you aspire to as revolutionary is a master. You shall have one.
1: Yeah, and that's a very uh that's a very, you know, dialectical view, right? We summon we summon up our own demons and we summon up our own our own downfalls in a lot of ways. And through through, you know, the contradictions in people, the contradictions in the society that we're in. And I think that that's very, you know, Lacan and, you know, uh, I guess I really only have a view of Lacan through Žižek, so, you know, I don't I won't claim to be a Lacan, Lacanian scholar or anything. I mean, dude, Lacan but, is
0: oh, <laughs> so obscurantist. No one, no one has a good understanding of Lacan.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, mostly it's just me reading, reading Zizek and taught him talking about toilets. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, I think it's very, you know, uh, in, in very much the same way that Marx said, the bourgeoisie have produced their own grave diggers. Um, you know, revolutionaries, create their own grave diggers by, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, I guess I wouldn't say fetishizing, but relying on like a vanguard. Right. And that's something I guess that this, this piece very much like criticizes and like investigates a lot. Right. Which is, you know, I guess vanguardism, yeah. right. Uh, in, uh, in labor organizing, there's a very specific like theory of how to view a workplace. Right. Which is this like as a bullseye, Right where you have activists in the center you have like people who are will like go to a union meeting in the next ring and then like people who are unengaged but pay union dues in the next ring and like that's how to view like uh that's how to view a workplace basically and once you really get uh once you really get into the fact that the activists are the only people doing anything that's really i think where where uh bourgeois ideology really starts to seep in, right? Because you're very much in the biz. because eventually it becomes a class or a uh, group of people inventing the reasons for their own existence.
0: Certainly. I think one problem too is like the whole, like ideology, right? It's like ideology has made us very docile. Capitalism has made us so docile where we'd like, people don't want To like they've been lulled to sleep in terms of engaging in a political process, engaging like taking their own agency. They're lulled to sleep by capitalism and letting like feeling like there is a hierarchy of like those people will do it, or I'm not smart enough, or I'm not this or that. Like that hierarchical kind of viewpoint constraint Mm -hmm. has made like people then internalize that and believe that they don't like they can't, their voice isn't important, or they're not smart enough, or they're not so and so to be to participate so in a sense it's like yes capitalism has like pushed us to be so productive but it's also like simultaneously the contradiction there is that it's pushed us to be incredibly fucking lazy because we don't want to get off of our asses and do anything to take like to actually have agency in the political process and in our own lives it's just like oh well i'll just go to a ju-. it's like easier to just go to work and do a nine to five than it is to you know, d- do something on your own or create or like be part of something or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And that's very
1: much where like, you know, the, that's, that's, uh, the, that that's very tied into, I think like the, the Calvinist foundation of our, of our specific country. Right. Yeah. Uh, this very like, uh, very capitalist friendly religion or form of Christianity, oh, you know, Protestantism and Calvinism in general, where it's very, uh, it's very like you're defined by your work as opposed to just, it's something that you need to do to survive. Right. Right. That's a very, uh, that's a very capitalist, uh, idea. Right. Because back when feudalism existed, like you, you weren't, you weren't defined by the fact that you had to, you know, pay grain taxes to the Lord. You were defined by, you know, whatever else the fuck you did, like in the meantime. Right. And so that's kind of one of those things where, uh, you can definitely see, uh, the ideas of a society molding being molded by their own economic conditions. Right. As opposed to like, you know, uh, when feudalism around was around, we had Catholicism, right. Which was very hierarchical kind of, uh, kind of, uh, you know, theory of the world or for whatever reason.
0: Um, I want to read this other passage. This is funny too. You already mentioned that famous Marx quote about Mm -hmm. philosophers having sought to only describe the world or understand the world the goal being to change it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I thought that was very funny, contraposed to this particular quote from the text. Whereas Marx tied his hopes to radical action, Husserl, so Edmund Husserl, the phenomenologist, believed in radical contemplation. Moreover, unlike Marx, he attributed the actual decay of Western civilization to the decay of thought, whereas for Marx, the relation was the opposite. Sartre, another phenomenologist, explicitly identified naturalism as a form of bourgeois thought, Yeah, so I think that that's very, um, you know,
1: it's very uh, trying to turn, I guess, like, you know, uh, that's a very, like, idealist point, I guess. Um, But I do think that you can find a lot of refutation in that because of the fact that, you know, I mean, the philosopher class really only existed because well, I wouldn't call them a class, but philosophers in general really only existed because there was a lot of uh, leisure time created right, by yeah, exactly. you know the the Neolithic Revolution and everything, and you know I mean slave societies when it comes to Greece, uh, you know uh, feudalism having a bunch of peasants and a bunch of people to you know sit around and doing doing nothing when it comes to you know uh, Saint Augustine and people like that. Uh, I think I think they're very. Uh, I think the decay of thought is very much uh, a product of how uh, how totalizing capitalism is and how flattening it is right it 's very uh, it 's turning people into their functions right uh, i I staple the leather together you make and you you make like carve the wood wood legs and together we make a chair right that 's it's very much intent on the ideology of capitalism. is very much intent on, um, you know, just making people into automata, right? These little uh, these little finite state machines running around doing what they're told.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny too that you kind of bring to mind. I'm in the process of reading Frederick Jameson's um, postmodernism of the late or the uh, cultural logic of late capitalism. Which I think too very much plays into that sort of same right. idea that you were sort of just discussing. It's like the the reason for the ideological or the the ideas have rotted is because the material sort of conditions have become such so that there is no possibility of like a like li- liberalism has been is outdated. It it can't react to the material conditions that postmodernism has created. The logic, the cultural logic of late capital doesn't allow for that sort of thing to exist anymore. It's a relic of a, of a bygone era and it's not equipped to handle moving forward and beyond.
1: Right. Yeah. And that's definitely, you know, that's, I mean, shit, that's dialectics right there. Right. I mean, it's, you know, uh, the, the contradictions that, that an economic system really like brings to the forefront are, you know, what people eventually come to realize in their very gut, right? And that's, that's once again, why I think it's very, you know, I think if you explained, uh you know, the idea of like dialectical materialism to anybody, they would say, oh yeah, that probably makes sense because everybody's good at Recognizing contradictions in their daily lives, right? And the point of liberalism, I think, you were saying, is basically to try and smooth that smooth that over and make make it so that, and especially of uh, late capitalist culture, is to very much say like to people, this is fine. Please, please, you know, like here, have have some you know TV shows and just forget about it. Like your work is so alienating that you need to escape. Uh, let's watch some cartoons. <laughs> right. And so it's very, uh, yeah, we definitely as the productive forces in our society, like consolidate and become create less and less scarcity. It ideology definitely does become a more powerful force, right? Because, uh, like you said, like you said, our economy is reliant on people not paying attention. Right. And that's real, like, you know, people not realizing that they can unionize, people not realizing, you know, not taking the time to worry about any of these things. And, you know, I I think there's definitely something to be said where, um, you know, uh, if we kind of see uh, society as like the economic base and the ideology of the society that it's created, like, I would probably say that it's like kind of on a scale, right? And like one's more important than the other. And, like, you know, it kind of teeter-totters and seesaws. And, you know, looking at, looking at what we have right now, I would say that, you know, ideology is only becoming more and more important in our lives. And that's really where, you know, teaching people that they have power comes through. Like, it's kind of like, you know, breaking the apple, the apple <laughs> throwing the hammer at
0: the screen, kind of that 1984 ad. And that, I think, to me, that brings to mind my m- maligned friend that I just that I got a lot of respect for Baudrillard in his idea that and his study really of I think that is especially important in our context now is the political economy of the sign and his quote about there being more information than ever but less meaning right so it's like we have all of these you know media outlets right that are generating a bunch of fucking content for us to churn through but there's less and less like it's all kind of like there's no like it's becoming farther and farther divorced from any sort of sense of what's real or you know what i mean and it's all just this sort of simulated kind of bullshit discourse that's constantly going but it's all sort of eventually like like there's no praxis involved it's all just Mm -hmm. a big circle jerk
1: yeah and so you can kind of see that like you know how uh shit the ideology of of our uh of our society has become like kind of you know a sign without a without a, a copy without an original right in that the economic forces have developed much more than our ideology has right and so you know our ideolo- the the ideology of American society is very rooted in these uh, uh, like 18th century liberal ideals and yet we have completely just gotten to the point where those ideals are completely meaningless to people right uh liberty means something different to everyone and yeah so like our even our even the way we look at the world has become just completely alienated from our material circumstances it's very like separated
0: i guess in a way um back to the text yeah. i wanted to look into this which was sort of a discussion of materialism and idealism that i thought was sort of interesting that i want to read through for us real quick the subjective side of human experience had been developed by idealism rather than materialism almost to this day however what marx wrote in the first thesis remains true the subjectivity of human experience has had to be championed not by Marxists, who have all along been bent on denying it but by idealist philosophers like husserl so that when the Western world was plunged into a deep spiritual crisis, Marxism automatically excluded itself from providing any answers. How could it? From the perspective of a scientific materialist, the crisis did not exist. Diseases of the soul show themselves only to those who believe in souls, and the communists only believe in matter. So the fasc- fascists took over and shot the communists. Marxists could have chosen to be libertarians from the beginning, but men make history under the power of circumstances. And near the end of the last century, the circumstances were more conducive to the brand of socialism that ultimately produced than to the kind we would like to see. Indeed, our being libertarians has a lot to do with the authoritarianism of our socialist predecessors.
1: Yeah, and that's a, that's definitely something that you see a lot in you know current libertarian socialist like thoughts and arguments. I guess. Right. Um, and once again, something that I really liked about this piece is that it was very, uh, I wouldn't, I would say like, you know, uh, I mean, it brought up the fact that like, you know, Rosa, Rosa Luxemburg in, uh, in opposition to Lenin. Right. And, and really, I think, uh, you know, having a, having a libertarian like foundation really can prevent, I think, you know, an idea like, And I like, you know, the authoritarianism that we found in communism on in the past. Uh, And I do also like that they managed to point out that, like, this is very created by like the people's ideas of what is practical and what can happen are very, uh, you know, influenced by the situation. Right. Uh, As opposed to, you know, and, and so that's something where I really think that you can a lot of people can learn from specifically rosa Luxemburg, right she was this uh she's she gets a lot of uh kudos from you know the libertarian socialist people for being i guess like profound like critical i would say of of bolshevism right but i mean when it comes down to it right what what did she end up dying doing right she she saw the failures of the german spd And the failures of this, like fairly, you know, like uh, I guess, hands-off approach to creating creating socialism. And she she died a revolutionary, right? And she, you know, she came around on some ideas that Lenin had, right? Which was which I think is very profoundly what this piece is trying to say, which is saying, which is that you really need to look at the circumstances, and you need to have a good evaluation of the situation. Uh, before you before you make really like profound judgments on what is what is and what isn 't possible right and so that 's definitely where I think that like especially now in American society right like socialism is like out of the brains completely of everybody right and so that 's really where it comes down to being able to even just like we like we can 't even talk about like Doing all this LARPy bullshit of like pr- play acting at revolution until we really get to until we get to a point where people can realize that they can seize power themselves, right? And that's that's very much has it has to you have to be practical, you have to be pragmatic and you have to be scientific right you need to you need to look at the conditions that you're in and then decide your strategy moving forward uh which is uh, you know uh, I would say where people very frequently fall into dogmatism, i suppose right like people are very uh you know uh, people people very frequently like will have all these ridiculous straw man arguments against one another, right where it's just people talking in circles over you know relitigating whether or not like revolutionaries were right or wrong in the past when i don't think that that's very productive i think it's like you know uh criticizing that comes to more you know like i said before uh, learning about the failures and figuring out what to do better next time as opposed to you know arguing for the millionth time over whether or not you know cr- the Kronstadt rebellion was was <laughs> you know uh, correct or not right
0: that's just my thoughts. I think to that end, too, so this, the piece also makes, I think, a really good quote, and you kind of just dis- discussed a little bit of that. So the development of of socialist revolution or Marxist revolution in Germany and in Russia. So I'm going to quote from the text here, which I think is that this is a really good portion. That's great. In Russia, as the nihilist Ch- Chakev, uh pointed out, revolution was possible only as long as Russia was still a backward country. In other words revolution in Russia was possible precisely because there was no capitalism to speak of hence there was never any question of marxism integrating itself into the structure that preceded it finding no capitalism within which to loose itself russian marxism had to invent something like it one ought to remember here that in russian capitalism that in russia capitalism started too late to develop the same way that it had developed in england and france had it attempted to take the latter's example it would have quickly fallen prey to foreign capital in much the same fashion as, for example, Latin America. The solution was supplied by the Bolsheviks. Primitive accumulation under forced conditions, super-exploitation of Russian labor, and autocratic economic development took the place of foreign investment and allowed the Soviet Union to become an independent industrial power.
1: Yeah, I think that that's very. Uh, I think that's a very salient, uh, you know, description of you know what what happened in Russia. I think that that's you know a very uh, honest interpretation. I'd say, right? Uh, like, you know, uh, one of the things that I really took uh, took from this is that we cannot apologize. We cannot apologize. We cannot, uh, and we cannot. Uh, but we need to learn right uh and so i think that that's you know uh, one of one of the big thing i mean all the deaths that i would say happened quote unquote under communism with the you know the in in china and the ussr specifically right uh, like like they said in this piece this is an an industrialization process over the course of like 50 years right when when in uh when in, when feudalism was really getting like stripped away and everything in these western demo- uh, not democracies but western societies like France and England that that process of industrialization took a lot of colonialism right which killed untold amounts of people and also you know a very slow process of like you know having slums having you know child labor and having everyone die in the, in that right and so it's you can kind of see how In the Russian Revolution, it was very. They spent a lot of time, right? For example, waiting around for the bourgeois revolution, right? Which is something that Marx, for a while, thought had to happen before socialism could happen. And what what really came down to, right, was uh, this fascist, uh, this proto-fascist Kornilov. Who was a military go- military general? Um, eventually, he al- he almost seized power from the provisional government, and it it came because the the liberals in Russia were so busy um, worrying about whether or not they went too far, right? Um, they, and because the because the revolution in Russia had very strong socialist overtones from the very beginning, right? And so the socialists in the provisional government wasted a lot of time waiting for the liberals to deal with the reactionaries and end the war. And that definitely gave rise to this idea that they needed that like state power needed to be assumed completely right now. Otherwise, you know, the fascists would take complete control over the country. And that's when, that's when Kerensky armed the Bolsheviks and, you know, brought, brought about his own demise. And so that's, uh, yeah the like like we've said before, the material conditions definitely informed how that revolution played out,
0: yeah, which I thought this that was just a great analysis Absolutely. from the piece itself um <laughs> i I want to read again from the text of that I thought this was uh, I just kind of subtitled my notes here. It was like anarchists focus too much on dragging Marxists for clout here. <laughs> <laughs> Bolshevism is imbued through and through with bourgeois ideology, but nevertheless, it remains a revolutionary ideology. To transcend it rather than negate it, we have to historically situate it without overlooking its uniqueness. Instead of doing this, libertarian th- thought has, for the most part, been preoccupied with vilifying it. Yeah, as I think you've spoken to a number of mm-hmm. times in the, in the yeah. Of the pod. I definitely, I definitely, <laughs> I highlighted that quote
1: as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, it comes back to that idea of you know uh, figuring out what works, what doesn't, and like like the like the writer said it's very you know bolshevism was very bourgeois right in a lot of sense it was the it was the bourgeois revolution that all these social democrats in russia were waiting for right because it did it did create uh the industrialized you know the industrialized conditions along with the the bureaucracy that ended up you know being soviet soviet style communism over you know after uh, after World War Two, uh, or I guess even leading up to it, right? Uh, and so it's very, yeah. I, I think people do waste a lot of time. Uh, I think I agree that they waste a lot of time um, nitpicking every single thing, right? It's a lot like how you see uh, people get preoccupied with, even you know today in present day, like denouncing Maduro, right? Like, oh, uh, you know, I. I think Maduro is bad but we shouldn't intervene, right? Uh, that's a very uh, that's a very different concept from that's a very different thing from saying no we absolutely must not intervene this will kill a lot of people if we do it, right? And so it's also it's you know it's very frequently you see that same preoccupation with criticism as opposed to uh, as opposed to adaptation, I would say. And you once again you even see that in in uh, you know uh, how in how we talk about today's governments as well.
0: Uh, this next portion I want to read because if we, our author kind of goes in on on the libertarian socialists. Unless we want all our heroes to be martyrs, we have to learn that the world will not be changed without getting a few hands dirtied. We should give Magno the Kronstadt sailors, the Spanish anarchists, the French students, and all other libertarians their due, and then we should note that they failed to be a symbol is not enough for too long now libertarianism has been an outlet for those who can't accept the existing order but at the same time can't be bothered with doing anything about it anybody serious about radical social change can't help but notice that while anarchists may have beautiful sentiments bolsheviks are more likely to get something done about or something do something about it which brings us back to the synthesis of object and subject that has been prominent throughout these reflections Through this synthesis, revolutionary socialism attempted for the first time to overcome the one-sidedness of materialism while at the same time avoiding the perils of romantic idealism. It should be recognized that libertarian socialism must start from this synthesis.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that this is where, like, this is really where uh, these, uh, this writer, like, really uh, gets, gets me to buy in, right? Because once again, every single time that you, uh, uh, I think there's a Kropotkin quote in here, right? It is only those who do nothing who make no mistakes, right? <laughs> right. And uh, this, this, very, uh, this very, you know, like, like the author said, this very romantic idea of, of socialism being immediately the exact liberatory force that we always dreamed of is very... Uh, uh, I'm not going to use the word I word idealist <laughs> but it's very I would say it's you know moderately naive right uh but we also do need we also do need to be able to you know uh there's a there's another quote from the 18th Brumaire. I'm sorry I'm just bombarding people with this <laughs> but the, I've I've recently been rereading it and um uh, you know uh Proletarian revolutions are constantly self-criticizing, right? And that's why they have these starts and fits and starts, right? And that's kind of where you see the difference between, uh, the Bolshevik revolution and, you know, the revolutions of 1848 or like the, uh, or you know the the preconditions to the Bolshevik to the October Revolution, where you had you know these socialists getting into the provisional government and wondering whether or not they should seize power, and that's really where you know the waiting around kind of kills them, right? That especially when it comes to like you know uh, letting letting all these pogroms happen in the countryside of Russia while while you know the whole state collapses around them, it becomes very it it's almost impossible like the the crisis had gotten so escalated that the only thing left was this brutal and and uh, you know exacting uh revolution that made no made no excuses for the terror <laughs> right uh and so it was yeah the red the red terror and everything was very much brought up by the the uh you know the the fact that they had allowed all this room for these, you know, uh, discontented soldiers to become pogromists, right? They really needed to root out these people, and when and you know their own hesitancy kind of ended up producing the the bourgeois like uh, ideas of hierarchy that the Bolsheviks had, uh, and you know if you if you look at the prac the actual thing that happened in. Russia compared to like state and revolution right the the book and the, the the theory that for revolutionary change that Lenin laid out very different right um he has this famous quote about like we have we have climbed halfway up the mountain now we must go back right and that's probably one of his most uh that's probably at least where Lenin definitely falls into uh this bourgeois idea of like, well, we need state capitalism to be able to develop the productive forces. Right. And that's, I think very much where, uh, the failures of the USSR also comes around through the failure of world revolution. Right. Uh, it, it really, I, I, it keeps me awake at night. just thinking about what happens if, you know, the, the Spartacist revolt actually succeeds instead of getting put down by the SPD. Right. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's definitely um, a lot of the a lot of the brutality is also built into the fact that they were isolated, right? Uh, I I don't know what the world would look like if you know the USSR actually had an ally leading up to World War II, as opposed to you know uh, having nobody and basically being having war declared on them as soon as they pieced out of the war in wo- of World War I uh, by the Allied powers real thing that happened <laughs> america britain and france invaded russia after they declared peace
0: oh absolutely yeah fun times for me this to to me for me this was the author was very much so like point poking the libertarian socialist in the chest and saying look look in the real world what has happened where have revolutions occurred it is the marxist leninist groups that have have carried out revolution or have made attempts what you know what revolutions have the anarchists you know, succeeded in where have the, where's their action? Where's their praxis? Right. And it's few and far between in comparison when you look at history.
1: Right. And I think that that does kind of, I think that is kind of a very like product of, of the, uh, I guess, uh, who was it? Um, Proudhon, uh, the Proudhon, like, uh, idea of like just, Refusing to engage with the state will bring about its own destruction. I think that that's very, uh, I think that that's very grounded in, you know, that's very foundational to how a lot of anarchists think probably right. Where it's this very like um, refusal to participate in anything less than perfect. And that's really where people get into trouble Whereas, you know, if they were, if they were participating in the revolution, they would have a much easier time of being like, you know, uh, that, that rank and file revolt against the, the, uh, the, the centralized, you know, revolutionary vanguard, I think, yeah. which, uh, you know, uh, once again, uh, I think that that's, uh, the, the Kronstadt rebellion is a very good example of like what, what anarchists doing actually like, you know, being a participatory like force in the struggle over uh, over society uh, looks like, and I think that these rebellions definitely play their part in saying that we need to go further, right? And that's where that's where I think that that's where I would say that like you know it's uh, people who are like vehement, an- vehemently anti-state no matter what form and vehemently anti-hierarchy no matter the form uh, definitely should uh, play more of a part in in you know revolutionary strategy i guess but once again i just don't see us being in that position right now if you know what i mean we have a lot of we had a lot we have a lot of political education and teaching people how to how to flex their muscles before we even get into
0: that i guess i mean i think you bring up good points as far as but i would say this too though like you have to remember that after the 1917 revolution Lenin, even Lenin used the Cheka to round up all of Absolutely. the anarchists yep. and really kind of smash and you know even Makhno he pretty much like Machno escaped to France.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and that's where I think it also that's definitely the danger of all these like centralized kind of vanguardism vanguardist like uh, views of revolution come through, right? And especially in Russia where where uh, you have this this permanent conundrum of whether or not these people are being funded by America or other capitalist nations, um, you know, very, very frequently you can turn, you can turn an honest rebellion into, into a capitalist plot. And that's, I think what a lot, uh, what fomented a lot of the, you know, like you said, the, the Cheka's brutality, uh, and the, uh, what is it? The NKVD, uh, the, the secret police of Russia very much were, uh, it it bred a lot of paranoia. And almost right... Almost, almost rightfully so, right? When you look up the history of the CIA, of how, you know, how vehemently, like, uh, they were trying to create, like, a right-wing coup in Russia and every other socialist-ish nation. Um, You know, the paranoia was somewhat justified, but also got out of hand, right? And that's where... uh, that's where it come. That's where uh, being able to like you know realize that they <laughs> as a, someone from some show like I may have went a few um, I may have went a bit too far in some places. <laughs> it's like yeah, definitely the Russians did go a bit too far in a lot of places, and so that's that's really why it comes to uh, not getting rid of the theories, but learn, but like adapting them comes in. I think
0: i think too you have uh, i mean you have stalin siding with Ooh, the yeah. fascists <laughs> against the the anarchists in spain yeah so i think that is the hesitancy of the anarchists and the libertarian socialists to ally with the you know the mark the, M- the ml's the mlms yeah
1: and i mean shit at some point you almost uh with with stalin it, it who, uh, not, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Stalin apologist. So I, I probably (laughs) have a very, uh, different opinion than some of my, uh, Marxist Leninist comrades. But, uh, you know, that's, that's where it really starts to get into like the revolution had been dead basically for a couple decades, (laughs) you know? And it's like, it's very, uh, what do you, how do you say it? How do you how do you uh, put this? It's very, it's almost like you know the Stalin was like the the evolution of all the bourgeois like hierarchy worship uh, in in the Bolshevik thought like kind of uh, brought forth right. He was a very good careerist right, which was one of the biggest problems in the Soviet Union, especially after after the war ended right uh after world war 1 ended uh that that like we, they had to you know step back from the mountain and begin the climb again was very i think that led to a lot of the the paranoia that you see with you know uh, soviet uh soviet
0: police that secret police at some point um i want to go to now to the author's sort of summing up and and ending this with a really great uh, paragraph here no movement consider itself socialist that does not put into practice the synthesis that has eluded marxism since the first thesis bolshevism failed by succeeding anarchism failed by failing we'll see what we can do hell yeah <laughs> yeah i think that that's a very good you know i think that's a very
1: good uh thing right i mean uh, a very good point uh once again i, I think something that is very Uh, salient about the revolution in Russia is that, you know, they brought about socialism's grave diggers just as the bourgeois and capitalism brought about their own, right? And so I think that that's probably something to learn from, especially when here in America, right, we have very developed capitalism, right? And so uh, any revolution that would come presumably would be a lot less bloody because we don't need to go through this industrialization process that killed that created famines all over the all over the soviet union
0: at the same time it's like how do you over at the same time it's like the production product, like capitalism is so advanced that the state has the technology true to really like the almost the automation part of it is so advanced that a very small cabal can has the ability to wipe out you know Infinite number of of the sort of proletariat, the workers, the the revolutionaries. Yeah, absolutely, and, and that's uh, the fucking scary part. Yeah,
1: and that's uh, that's what you know. I think uh, what is it? Uh, there's there's this common theme through Marxism that like you know, a society either is uh, is revolutionized or or leads to or the contradictions in it lead to the ruination of all classes uh simultaneously right even even the the rulers and the ruled will both die uh, die starving you saw that in rome specifically uh, the roman empire uh, you know was unable to deal with you know uh, the great migrations that were causing and it was uh, if it couldn't expand it couldn't perpetuate itself and we also see that with climate change today right where that it's it's the situation is becoming more and more dire with every year and that is where that's really where it gets very concerning to me right because we have a long a long 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 way to go before we're talking you know of revolutionizing society and making a just world and we are on a clock <laughs> and a fairly short
0: one so i you know I don't know. if I mean, perhaps, but I also think that, for one thing, I think there's two forces that I think could bring about the collapse of the U.S. empire very swiftly. And one of those we just have barely missed the other night whenever Trump recalled the strike on Iran. I think an all-on Iraq-style invasion of Iran could very well lead to the collapse of the U.S. empire. I wouldn't be too sure whether <laughs> it would be in Im- whether that would be immediate or over the course of decades. I think that hmm. could be an event that would really I mean, I think tensions are extremely high. The contradictions in American society are at such a boiling point as they are that a war like that could really maybe consolidate, you know, a really strong anti-war movement with the rise of like the, you know, I mean, social. Socialism, democratic socialism, whatever you want to call it, that is somewhat being discussed in the mainstream. I think that, you know what I mean, that little ember could be fanned a great deal by a conflict like that. And then I also think, number two, the next time that we experience a 2008-style economic crisis, all bets are off at that point, I think.
1: Yeah, well, I think think definitely the thing to learn from 2008— Right, is that people weren't ready? I guess. Right, there was no, there was no real like socialist movement. There wasn't really a lot of people who had set out to change society during that. And that's really where you get into the failures of the Occupy Wall Street movement. Right, they didn't have a, they didn't really have a praxis, I guess, or they didn't have a goal really, other than just like maybe you know society should be ordered differently. And that's really (laughs) where that's really where you know. Uh, having a materialist view of the world really kind of informs what to do, right? Uh, like, like Mark said, we make our own history, right? We can't wait for history to happen to us. It needs to be seized and it needs to be, and we need to, we need to be our own masters and our own gods. So, (laughs) you know, in a way.
0: Well... uh, we'll just live in that sort of Chinese curse era of maybe (laughs) you live in interesting times. Exactly. And see what happens. With any hope, we will make them interesting. (laughs) Even more interesting, more revolutionary. Hopefully. Knock on wood. But uh, do you have any final thoughts on the piece or anything else you'd like to uh, discuss? Um, Let me
1: scroll through the notes here. I think we we pretty much covered everything that I had to say. Uh, I think I got... I think I got a lot of, uh, yeah, I pretty much got, yeah, I definitely. So for me, the takeaway was that, you know, we need revolutionary doctrine, right? We need to know that we can make a society different and we need to know that we have agency and and history doesn't just happen to us. But we also need to, you know, be able to self-criticize and we also need to be able to have like, you know, a give and take between the leaders of a movement and the movement itself. And so that's probably what my biggest takeaway
0: I think cre- creating a more a more firm or more advanced or evolved form of libertarian socialism that recognizes its own failures and the failures of the the more statist approach Absolutely and not being so dogmatic in our criticism of one another but to Take that and as a lesson and apply that to hopefully <laughs> a future revolution that can really bring about change and really get to ultimately changing those productive forces and the mm-hmm. social relations within our society and the world at large
1: yeah, constructive criticism, not moral criticism, I guess. yeah exactly moralizing criticism
0: yeah but Hell yeah. I, I think that's that's a good spot to end the uh, pod for this week. Uh, do you want to share? Uh, I guess we could say again. You can follow you on Twitter. Yeah. At rules underscore follower. Do you have any other projects or anything like that? So yeah, 2020?
1: plugs, 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 plugs. Well, um, DSA has a lot of stuff going on. We're really you know ramping up. We've got, we just won uh, the repeal of a lot of uh, you know uh, no sit no lie no camping laws. So that that was a big win for us. Uh, as far as the labor committee, which I am a co-chair of, we are doing, we are going to Dallas soon to do, go to a labor notes troublemaker school. So if you want to know how to organize your workplace, if you want to know how to make your boss afraid of you, uh, talk to us. We'll have a registration form up on the website and on the Twitter soon. I've got to just make a few changes to the registration form and then I'll put it up. And uh you know, we need to yeah, so uh with any luck, we we can, you know, get a get a good convoy of Austin people out to that and uh you know, learn to
0: raise some hell at the workplace. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Once again, the young Hegelian Paul at at rules underscore follower follow this man Hell he's yeah. a uh he's a savvy shit poster <laughs> aren't we all thanks for having me absolutely anytime man you're right. welcome back uh, but this is podcast care of cooper cherry signing off for the week